0: Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. In part one of our series, we examined the history of the Mississippi River region up to the Louisiana Purchase in eighteen o three. After that, we ran down the list of international powers who had interest in the Louisiana territory, primarily Great Britain and Spain. We then turned our attention to Thomas Jefferson, the man most responsible for the Lewis and Clark expedition as well as our series stars, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. From there, we took a look at the birth of the Corps of Discovery and went through the preparations for the Journey West, including the addition of William Clark to the command structure. We then got the Journey West underway, sailing down the Ohio River toward the Mississippi. By episode's end, we had left Lewis and Clark in St. Louis for the winter of 1803-04. The plan was to gather volunteers, purchase supplies, and prepare to head up the Missouri River in the spring of 1804. And that gets us up to date. Today, we have several things on the agenda. First, we are going to examine the events and intrigue that surrounded Lewis and Clark and their expedition prior to their departure up the Missouri. Second, we will take a deeper look at the Corps of Discovery, talk about the makeup, and meet some of the key members of the Corps. And finally, we will sail up the Missouri in May of 1804. So, let us start by talking about the status of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery in the winter of 1803 04. The Corps had set up camp at the mouth of the Wood River, opposite the Missouri River. The site was called Camp Du Bois. Captain William Clark would handle the day-to-day activities around the camp, while Meriwether Lewis would head off to St. Louis. Using the line of credit given to him by Thomas Jefferson, Lewis continued to purchase supplies. He also met with potential recruits, as well as locals who had knowledge of what lay up the Missouri. One strange item that pops up at this time is an idea Lewis had to go and explore west toward the area around the key Spanish trading post of Santa Fe. He wanted to find out more about the gold and silver mines in the area. Jefferson was, rightfully so, appalled at the idea. The scheme was uncharacteristic of Lewis, who was normally so reasonable and logical. Perhaps it was his legendary restlessness getting the better of him. He was stuck in St. Louis for the winter and got the itch to go do something, anything. But it was not going to happen. The last thing Jefferson wanted was to hand the Spanish a reason to go to war with America and he certainly didn't want anything to happen to Lewis on the eve of departing on such a vital expedition. Jefferson pointedly ordered Lewis to stick to the mission. I do want to take a moment and talk about the Spanish. The transfer of power in Lower Louisiana occurred on December 20, 1803, in New Orleans. On March 9, 1804, the transfer of Upper Louisiana took place in St. Louis. Lewis and Clark were in attendance at the ceremony. But as we discussed last episode, the Spanish were annoyed to be losing the Louisiana territory. Some thought the sale was illegal, and others disputed exactly what territory was sold to the United States. This last item can't be stressed enough. In the eyes of many Spanish officials, they still saw these lands as part of their empire. St. Louis and New Orleans, well, sure, they were gone. But to many, the lands Lewis and Clark were heading into were Spanish territory. And the Spanish were not happy about the idea of Americans swarming over the Mississippi, whether they were traders or merchants or settlers. It was all a threat to the Spanish Empire, which was already bubbling with undercurrents of revolution. The fear was that the more the United States spread, the more their own colonies would be infected with ideas of freedom and liberty. When Lewis and Clark arrived in St. Louis in the fall of 1803, they did not hide the fact that they were going to explore the Missouri. While the expedition claimed the exercise was scientific in nature, the Spanish lieutenant governor of Upper Louisiana sent a note to his superiors stating that he felt the expedition was determined to find a route to the Pacific and he was right. Then, in March of 1804, United States General James Wilkinson, one of the most senior American officers in the West, sent a message to the Spanish warning them that the Lewis and Clark expedition was intent on reaching the Pacific, and that the purpose of the Corps of Discovery was to lay the groundwork for further American expansion. Wilkinson, by the way, was a traitor. He had been taking money from the Spanish for years, and would continue to do so for many more. We talked about him extensively in our series on Zebulon Pike, Which, if you have not already done so, I highly recommend that you listen to, as it's a great companion piece. Wilkinson encouraged the Spanish to stop Lewis and Clark if they wanted to put the brakes on American expansion and to keep a hold of these western lands. We will touch on this situation later in today's episode. So, in addition to adding recruits and supplies and drilling the men at Camp Dubois, in March of 1804, Lewis sent back his first batch of specimens to Jefferson and the American Philosophical Society. Lewis, by the way, had been inducted into the society, which was a great honor as it showed his enlightened sensibilities. As a note, amongst the items sent back by Lewis were samples of the Osage apple, now called the Osage orange. There are trees in Philadelphia and at the University of Virginia that still exist today that were grown from the cuttings that Lewis sent. That's not really critical to our story, but I thought it was pretty cool. So, as Lewis bought supplies—corn, flour, biscuits, pork, salt, candles, lard, tools—the keelboat and the two pirogues were made ready to sail at Camp Dubois. The pirogues were smaller riverboats, typically with 68 rowers and a pilot, able to carry about 8 tons of cargo. The plan of Lewis and Clark was to take the keelboat as far as the Mandan villages, which were located at present-day Bismarck, North Dakota, and then go into winter quarters. The keelboat would then return to St. Louis in the spring of 1805, and the Corps would continue up the Missouri River. It was no secret that both the Corps commanders, Clark in particular, were concerned about what they heard regarding the power and hostility of the Indians up the Missouri, specifically the Sioux. With that in mind, the expedition added a small bronze cannon, which was mounted on a swivel on the keelboat. The cannon could be packed with up to 16 musket balls, making it a pretty formidable piece of weaponry. Also, four heavy shotguns, called blunderbusses, were added to the corps armory. Two were mounted on swivels on the keelboat, and one was mounted on each pirogue. There would also be plenty of rifles shot and gunpowder. As for the men at Camp Dubois, they trained through the winter and tried not to get bored. Issues would arise at times, mostly surrounding drinking. Whiskey and drinking were a staple in the army, and in particular on the frontier. The occasional fight was not unexpected, and it was tolerated to a degree by the captains. So, while we are talking about the men of Camp Dubois, I want to take some time in examining the Corps of Discovery, specifically the men and makeup of the expedition. At the top of the command chain was Captain Meriwether Lewis. In an awkward situation, Lewis had offered William Clark a position as captain and co-commander. However, by early 1804, the army let them know that Clark's position would be that of second lieutenant, but with the pay of a captain. Clark was, understandably, stung by the decision and to top it off, his commission didn't begin until March 26, 1804, even though he had been working on behalf of the expedition for more than six months. It was a petty thing to do to the man, as it would deprive him of pay and seniority. Clark would later say, quote, I did not think myself very well treated, end quote. The danger at this time would have been Clark walking away, insulted by the treatment, but the man handled the situation gracefully and did not complain. Lewis insisted that the two men were equals, and in the end, it would have no real effect on the expedition. The men in the Corps would call Clark Captain, and any official document signed by Clark would be signed as Captain. In fact, for several years after the expedition, hardly anyone even knew that Clark wasn't a captain the entire time. It is a tribute to the two men that they were able to look beyond the matter, especially men who could be touchy about such things. So, technically Lewis was boss, but in the eyes of everyone, including themselves, they were co-commanders of the expedition. Let us take a look at the rest of the Corps of Discovery. The Corps would have its official swearing-in on March 31st, 1804. Here's the breakdown of the expedition at its inauguration. There would be three sergeants and 22 privates who would be permanent members of the Corps. The plan was for these 25 men to travel all the way to the Pacific Ocean with Lewis and Clark. The three sergeants were Charles Floyd, Nathaniel Pryor, and John Ordway. There would also be a group of six other privates, as well as a corporal named Richard Warfington who would travel only as far as the Mandan villages in North Dakota. The plan was for Warfington to sail the keelboat down the river in the spring with all the stuff they had collected in the coming months. Also in the expedition were a dozen voyagers, French frontiersmen. They would mostly be boatmen for the journey. These men would travel only as far as the Mandan villages. Next, there would be three others who would accompany the Corps. First would be York, Clark's slave. And second would be George Drouyer, a frontiersman and interpreter hired by Lewis. And the final member we cannot forget was Seaman, Lewis's black Newfoundland dog. By the way, Newfoundlands are big, hairy dogs, usually weighing about 150 pounds or more. I love this image of this huge, shaggy black dog sitting on the bow of the keelboat as it heads up river, or traipsing alongside Lewis as he is out hunting. Seaman, by the way, will become an integral part of the Corps and its legacy. The non-military personnel of the Corps would be paid on a contract basis. The soldiers would be paid their standard wages, plus there were promises of land grants and bonuses for the men when they returned. Before departing, Sergeant Ordway would write, quote, If we make great discoveries as we expect, the United States has promised to make us great rewards more than we are promised, end quote. The Corps was expected to be gone for two or more years. The members of the expedition were a diverse and experienced group, there were blacksmiths, hunters, trackers, gunsmiths, master boatmen, musicians, and artists. Two of the privates were part Omaha Indian and had traded up the Missouri. These men came from all over the country. Most were single, but there were a few married individuals. They were the best of the best. It would be a very different mix of the men than, say, what Zebulon and Pike would have to take West a couple of years later. Pike was just assigned some men and made do with what was given to him. But these men were specially selected by Captains Clark and Lewis— and they would be a formidable company. We will talk some more about the specific members of the Corps as we get into the narrative. So, that gets us so that we are ready to head off on the legendary journey of Lewis and Clark. But there is one other thing I want to cover, and that is the source material we draw so much from about this journey, the Journals of Lewis and Clark. We touched on the journals in the last episode, but I want to go into them a little more in depth. Lewis and Clark were ordered by Jefferson to each keep a journal of their travels. They, in turn, ordered the Corps' three sergeants to keep a journal as well. Many of these writings survive to this day, but nothing is complete. We find many gaps in the journals. There will be times, often months, where one of the men doesn't write anything. The reason for this is that it is believed that not all the entries have survived. Some may have been lost on the journey, others may have been lost after the fact. We will talk about this as we go along. The two captains' writing styles were very different. Clark was not as good a writer as Lewis, and his accounts are more terse and to the point, as well as riddled with spelling errors. Clark, however, was an excellent artist, and he will provide many wonderful sketches of plants and animals. In contrast, Meriwether Lewis was an excellent writer. He would write pages and pages of detail about everything and anything. His dedication to his craft was remarkable. It is frustrating, even painful, that we have lost some of his writings. So, add in the journals of the other party members, and we have a pretty good account of the Corps of Discovery. So, onward. The Lewis and Clark expedition targeted April 18, 1804 as the day to depart camp. However, there would be delays. Getting all the necessary supplies just took more time than anticipated. In the days leading up to the departure, the expedition would take in more food, clothing, liquor, salt pork, nails, and more. Right before departing, they would add 120 gallons of whiskey. Also, Lewis had troubles arranging for an Osage chief's journey to Washington, D.C. The bringing of native chiefs to Washington was something Jefferson wanted Lewis to set up, as a way to display the might of the United States. Thus, all of these things would contribute to a delay of several weeks. On May 7th, Captain Clark loaded the keelboat and did a test run. Clark noted that the men were eager to get going. On the keelboat would be the 25 soldiers who were permanent members of the Corps of Discovery, meaning the ones who would travel all the way to the Pacific. There would be 22 privates to row, plus three sergeants to command. Also, there were the two smaller riverboats, the Pirogues. One would be managed by Corporal Warfington and the six soldiers. The second pirogue would be manned by the French Voyagers. All three boats were packed to the brim with supplies. Still, Clark was concerned that they did not have enough gifts that they could use to negotiate with the native peoples, to get them all the way to the Pacific and then back. However, of the men, he was supremely confident. He would say that they were, quote, robust young backwoodsmen of character, healthy, hardy young men, recommended, end quote. After months in Camp Dubois, they were eager to get going. By the way, when I read quotes from the journals of Lewis and Clark, they don't always make perfect sense due to the author's less-than-perfect spelling and punctuation. However, I think the quotes, like this last one, get the point across. Finally, on May 14, 1804, the three boats departed their winter quarters. The voyage to the Pacific had begun. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly stopping not far upriver at the small village of St. Charles. Clark adjusted the load of the keelboat as he went, shifting around cargo to optimize the boat's performance. In St. Charles, they waited for Lewis to join them. Back in St. Louis, Captain Lewis made final arrangements to ship more specimens back to Jefferson. He also sent back a new updated map of the Louisiana Territory, having added in all the information he had gathered over the course of the winter. Jefferson would likely have been thrilled to get such a document. Lewis would arrive in St. Charles a few days later, and the three boats would prepare to depart. To the cheers of the locals, the three boats would set sail up the river on May twenty first at three thirty in the afternoon. The keelboat and the two pirogues were stuffed with goods and supplies. Along the shore rode several men on horseback, including the hunter George Truyer. Captain Amos Stoddard, who was the ranking military commander in Upper Louisiana at this time, saw the expedition off. He would write this about the three boats and of the Corps of Discovery. Quote all of them were deeply laden and well-manned. His men possess great resolution, and they are in the best health and spirits." End quote. And so, up the Missouri River went the Corps of Discovery. The expedition would make three and a half miles the first day, camping on an island that night. Two days later, on May 23rd, the Corps of Discovery almost had disaster befall them. Clark wrote that Lewis, while walking on some rocks, nearly fell from a height of 300 feet, but, quote, saved himself by the assistance of his knife, Lewis's death or injury just two days out would probably have sent the Corps right back to St. Louis. The next day, the three boats passed Boone's settlement, the home of famed frontiersman and explorer and future podcast subject, Daniel Boone. Boone had settled there in 1799. We don't know if Lewis and Clark met with Boone, but you would think they would have taken the opportunity to meet with the famed woodsman. May 25th saw the expedition pass La Charette, the last settlement of whites on the Missouri. Now, the core of discovery was truly on its own. With that, let us talk about the journey up the Missouri River. First thing, a keelboat is a big and bulky vessel, and as it was spring, the waters of the Missouri were high and the current often swift. This meant that progress was slow and tedious. The keelboat had four ways to propel it. First, if the waters were high enough, the crew could row, 11 men to a side. Second, when the waters were lower, the men would push the keelboat upriver using iron-pointed poles. Third, if the waters were especially low, the crew would debark the keelboat and tie a rope to it and literally pull it upriver. This was brutally hard work, dragging the big keelboat upriver through the morass of deadwood and sand and whatever else was clogging the waters. And finally, if the winds were favorable, which wasn't that often, the ship's sail could be used. This was the best-case scenario, as it was the one option that didn't require an exhaustive amount of effort. No matter what the situation, the keelboat would need to go slowly and deliberately in order to deal with the river's many obstacles—trees, branches, piles of driftwood, whirlpools, and sandbars. Something like a submerged log could rip a hole in the keelboat, so there was always someone up front watching for debris. The other boats in the expedition, the two pirogues, were easier to move upriver as they were lighter and rode higher on the water. However, the men had to be on constant alert to prevent something from smashing into the small boat's hull. So, up the Missouri River the Corps of Discovery went. As these were military men, routine was the order of the day. During the daytime, Clark generally stayed on the keelboat as he was the better waterman, and Lewis would walk along the banks of the river. Lewis, who was the superior scientist, would be on the lookout for anything of interest. He would collect specimens, plants, and animals, and make notes of geography. For the most part, the expedition tried to keep one of the two officers on the keelboat at any given time. It allowed the men to always have a leader at hand, and if something terrible happened, both officers were less likely to be killed or injured. The keelboat kept to a strict routine as well one sergeant would always be at the helm steering, another would be midship to manage the sail and watch the men, and the third would be stationed on the bow as a lookout. As noted, there were always men watching the river, letting out a warning if the water was getting low or debris was heading toward them. They would use poles to push debris aside if possible, or stop and clear the way when necessary. Also, George Druyard, the frontiersman, had brought two horses with him and would go off hunting each day. As the party moved upriver, the best hunters would gradually become known, and they would participate in gathering meat for the party. When not sailing on the river, the Corps of Discovery was equally disciplined, settling into a routine that helped make them efficient and effective. The Corps would camp on islands whenever possible, as a way to avoid being surprised by native Indians. Clark and Lewis ran a well-regulated and disciplined camp. There would be daily inspections of the rifles, the cannon, and the blunderbusses. When there was no meat brought in, food was prepared in the evenings, enough to eat that night and then for the next day. Meals would rotate. One day it would be hominy and lard, and the next would be salt pork and flour, and the next would be cornmeal and pork each night there was also a ration of whiskey given to the men. Having a ration of whiskey each night was like getting a daily vitamin for these men. It was welcome and expected. Above all, every day, every night, the captain stressed the need to be on alert. Men were always on guard, eyes open for signs of trouble. It can't be forgotten that Lewis and Clark had brought along an arsenal of weapons and gunpowder. If the expedition was overwhelmed, and the rifles and the ammunition to fall into the hands of the natives, it would have been a catastrophe for the United States. One other constant routine that I want to mention was the taking of observations by Lewis and Clark. As long as the weather permitted, the two men would take measurements of longitude and latitude. Their journals are filled with the detailed information. On June 1, the Corps reached the Osage River. They had traveled about 120 miles in 12 days, or 10 miles a day. Here, they would rest for two days. Occasional stops would be necessary for the expedition. Going upriver was a brutally difficult task, and the men would simply need some time to recuperate from the arduous physical chores they were undertaking. Pushing upriver, the Corps would come upon three traders coming downstream on June 8th. The traders had a pirogue filled with furs and pelts. Captain Clark estimated that the value of the furs was around $900. Historian Stephen Ambrose noted that $900 in furs was worth about $9,000 in New York and that the $9,000 of furs in New York were worth about $90,000 in China. I think that demonstrates what was at stake for many of the people interested in the West. The fur trade was a gold mine, and the emerging markets, like China, only made the furs even more valuable. Four days later, Lewis and Clark would come upon two more pirogues of trappers heading towards St. Louis to sell their furs and pelts. The Corps would purchase some moccasins from the traders— plus 300 pounds of what Clark called Voyager's Grease. The grease was used as bug repellent. The mosquitoes and gnats and flies on the river could be at times unbearable. Voyager's Grease was spread on the skin to keep the bugs away. Amongst the traders traveling in the canoes was a man named Pierre Dorian Sr., a 55-year-old Frenchman. Dorian had known Clark's older brother, George Rogers Clark. His wife was a member of the Yankton Sioux tribe, and Dorian had lived with them for many years, he knew French and English, as well as Yankton Sioux. Seeing an opportunity to add a person who knew the native language and the territory, Dorian was successfully recruited to join the expedition. On June 26, the Corps arrived at Caw Point, where the Kansas River drains into the Missouri. The expedition was now about 400 miles upriver. Here, the men spent four days resting. Lewis and Clark would measure the two rivers, finding the Kansas to be 230 yards wide, while the Missouri was 500 yards wide. The night of June 28th, 29th, the expedition would have its first major issue. Private John Collins was on guard duty. Collins was known to like his whiskey, and that night he couldn't resist himself and decided to tap a barrel. A second private, Hugh Hall, found out what Collins was up to, and the two men proceeded to get drunk. This was, of course, a terrible dereliction of duty. A court, run by Sergeant Pryor, was adjourned, and four of the privates served as a jury. In short order, both men were convicted. Collins was found guilty of getting drunk on duty and stealing company supplies, while Hall was found guilty of stealing supplies. The trial is believed to be the first conducted in the Louisiana Territory under the ownership of the United States. Collins would get 100 lashes, while Hall would get 50. The punishment was dealt by the other men in the Corps, and while you think that might mean their comrades would go easy on them, you would be wrong. Getting drunk on duty risked everyone's life, and every soldier knew it. These men had to depend on each other, and such behavior was unacceptable. Also, their whiskey supply would not last forever, and all the men knew it. By tapping a barrel and drinking a bunch of it, it was effectively stealing from the rest of the men. They would have been pissed about it, and they dealt out punishment with little sympathy. In fact, Captain Clark would say, quote, we have always found the men very ready to punish such crimes, End quote. So, on with the journey. As the expedition went further and further into the interior, they saw more game, including deer, elk, and beaver, making meat more and more available on the menu. Also, fruit was beginning to ripen, adding another welcome source of food to the men's diets. By the way, the lack of fruit was an issue at times for the party. Without fruit, the men would not get enough vitamin C and begin to display some of the symptoms of scurvy. This would not be a huge issue, but when men got sick, the lack of vitamin C was sometimes a contributing factor. On July 4th, Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery would camp at a creek near what is present-day Atchison, Kansas. To celebrate the nation's birthday, the cannon was fired off and an extra portion of whiskey was given to the men. In honor of the day, the creek was dubbed Independence Creek by the expedition. It is a name that sticks to this day. On the night of July 11th, 12th, the Corps would have another issue. Private Alexander Willard fell asleep at his post. Now, to fall asleep at your post was one of the most serious offenses in any army. So serious was it considered, it was punishable by death. Willard would be convicted of his crime, and as punishment, he would receive 100 lashes a day for four straight days. Again, the men had no sympathy for Willard. This kind of behavior could kill them all, and it would not be tolerated. On July 21st, the Corps reached where the Platte River meets the Missouri, which is just south of modern-day Omaha, Nebraska. A couple of days later, about 10 miles upstream from the Platte, Lewis and Clark ordered a stop to the expedition as they were now nearing Sioux Indian country. As we have discussed, the Sioux were the most powerful of the Plains Indians, and Lewis and Clark feared, for good reason, that they would be hostile to the Americans. A camp was set up to allow the weary men to recuperate and the sick to get well. As a note, illness was an everyday affair for the expedition. Men would suffer from bouts of malaria or dysentery or broken bones and a host of other ailments. Lewis, who had a good knowledge of herbs and medicines, served as the primary physician for the Corps. From this camp, the men would hunt and fish and go out and collect fruit. Game was plentiful here, and no one went hungry. Lewis would continue to catalogue plants and animals that he came upon. The men in the Corps would even help out. Private Joseph Field killed a badger. Lewis would put his taxidermy skills to use and skin and stuff the animal to send back to Jefferson. And it was not just collecting specimens, but writing about them. Lewis would write thousands of words describing various creatures, such as birds. He would note their length and weight, their markings, and the noises that they made. Clark would also make observations, and as we noted earlier, put his excellent drawing skills to good use, sketching various plants and animals. Up to this point, the Corps had not encountered any Indians. The main reason was that it was now buffalo hunting season, and the Indians were out on the prairies. George Druyard and another man headed up the Platte River to search out a tribe of Oto Indians, but would find no one in their village as the tribe was out on the hunt. On July 20th, Druyard would encounter a Missourian Indian and bring him back to the camp. The Indian lived with the Oto. After talking with the captain's Vienna interpreter, he was sent back to his tribe, along with one of the voyagers, with instructions to invite the Oto to come visit. On August 1st, Captain William Clark would celebrate his 34th birthday. He wrote that he had a birthday meal of elk, venison, and beaver tail, and a dessert of cherries, plums, grapes, and raspberries. That doesn't sound too bad. As a note, beaver tail was considered the tastiest cut of meat. It was always a treat for the men to get it. On August 2nd, a small party of Oto Indians came to camp. A larger meeting was set up for the next day at Council Bluff. The site is about 20 miles north of current-day Council Bluff, Iowa, and on the Nebraska side of the river. The next day, 250 Oto Indians and some Missouris came to meet Captains Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. The Oto were a small tribe at this time, and their population failing. They had been joined by the Missouri Indians, whose numbers had dwindled dramatically. We will find this throughout the Indian populations at this time. The closer to Western civilization the Indians were, the greater their population was decimated by diseases brought by Europeans. Smallpox was the biggest killer, wiping out whole tribes. Even the more powerful Indians, such as the Sioux, would find themselves consolidating their people. You will find Indian tribes reduced by half or two-thirds over a generation due to smallpox and measles. This was the situation that Lewis and Clark would find when they arrived in the summer of 1804. For the meeting with the Oto, the Americans would make it a formal affair. Lewis and Clark would put on full-dress uniforms, and the soldiers would conduct a close-order drill and fire off their weapons. The American flag was raised. It was likely a big mix of awe and confusion and amazement. Unfortunately, the greatest of the Oto Chiefs, Little Thief, was not in attendance. Meriwether Lewis would deliver a 2,500-word speech for the ceremony. It would take one and a half hours to complete as it had to be translated. Ultimately, it is what I call his stock speech. He informed the Indians that the United States now owned their lands and that they, the Indians, were now the children of the great Chief, Thomas Jefferson. He let them know that the United States wanted peace and friendship with the Indians, but he was not afraid to threaten them as well. He warned them that if they caused problems, no more traders would be allowed to come up to the Oto village, and the display of firepower made it very clear that more American soldiers would come if the Oto decided to wage war. Lewis told the Oto that cooperation and peace would mean they would thrive. The Americans would bring them goods and build a trading post in the area. It was a message that, likely, was met with confusion and a sense of dread. The Oto now had to figure out where they fit in this world of ever-growing players. The Americans then presented the Oto with presents, including red leggings, dress coats, blue blankets, flags, and commemorative medals. The offerings disappointed the Oto, who had seen this huge keelboat come up the river and figured they were going to get lots and lots of good stuff. The things they had been offered were fine, but they did little to help the Oto people. The Oto were a small tribe, and they needed something more than medals and flags. Instead, they asked for gunpowder and musket balls, as well as whiskey. Eager to have a successful first meeting, Lewis gave the Indians a canister of powder, 50 balls, and a bottle of whiskey. He also shot off his air gun, which did exactly as he intended. It astonished the Indians. For the Oto, the offerings from the Americans was skimpy, but it was a start. They accepted what was given and departed and they took an invitation to their head chief, Little Thief, to come visit the Americans. Lewis and Clark's first meeting with the Native peoples had gone pretty well, in their eyes. They felt that they had impressed the Oto people, and they did, but the Oto were also very wary. In reality, the attitudes of Lewis and Clark were immensely naive. I should add that this attitude was held by Thomas Jefferson as well. They felt that by coming upriver, tossing out a few trinkets to the Natives, and then offering up an enlightened argument for cooperation was what it would take for success. They viewed the natives as noble savages, who needed a firm hand from a guiding father. With such guidance, the Indians could easily be turned to the American cause. They could be convinced to settle down, stop fighting their neighbors, and become farmers and traders, that is, good Americans. But it ignored so much history and culture. It automatically assumed that every Indian would see the European way as the better or right way. As I said, it was naive of the Americans. No matter, the Corps of Discovery had successfully treated with the Oto, and now they pushed up the Missouri. The next day, Private Moses B. Reed requested permission to go back to the site of the meeting with the Oto and retrieve his knife that he had left. Reed was given permission, but he did not return. On August 6th, the Corps came to the conclusion that Reed had deserted. George Druger was sent out to find Reed, with orders to return with him, dead or alive. Meanwhile, the expedition moved on. The captains were anxious to meet with the Oto chief, Little Thief, so over the next week or so, they would send out men to try and find his party. They would have no luck, at least for a time. Moving upriver, the men recorded finding abandoned villages, speculating that the inhabitants had died or migrated to other villages due to smallpox. On August 12th, Clark would make note of a prairie wolf that he tried to shoot. The prairie wolf was a coyote, and while many frontiersmen had seen the animal, this would be one of the first recorded encounters of the coyote by an American. The next day, August 13th, the expedition would stop at a place they called Fish Camp. Here, they would stay and rest for several days. Fish Camp, as you can imagine, was a great place to fish. It was located near what is present-day Sioux City, Iowa. In one day, Clark reported that at a nearby creek, he and 10 of his men caught 318 fish. Salmon, bass, pike, catfish, and more. The following day, they would bring in almost 500 catfish, plus 300 fish of other species. On August 17th, one of the men sent out looking for Chief Little Thief returned to camp with news. Little Thief would be there the next day, and with him was George Drewer and Private Moses Reed, the deserter. So, come August 18th, we have two things going on the return of Reed and the arrival of Little Thief, the head of the Oto people. Let's deal with Reed first. Moses Reed was put on trial and very well could have been executed for his crimes. Instead, he was convicted in order to be given 500 lashes. He would be required to stay with the party, but he was expelled from the Corps. The plan was to have him come to the Mandan villages as a boat hand and return in the spring. So, with Reed taken care of, let us turn to Little Thief. The Americans would give to the chief and his entourage, Lewis's stock speech, preaching friendship and peace. They would then present the Otos with some gifts— tobacco, paint, and beads, plus a printed certificate proclaiming the bearer a friend and ally of the United States. The Indians were not impressed, and reportedly angered the Americans when they handed back the certificate. Ultimately, the meeting produced little for either side. There was the typical display of American technology, the air gun was shot off, and whiskey was shared with the Indians, but nothing else was really offered to the Oto, and they would leave disappointed again, although Little Thief agreed to go to Washington in the spring the reality was that the Oto were a minor player in the West. Sure, Lewis and Clark wanted to be on good terms with them, but the Americans weren't going to shower the Oto with valuables when they had so much of their journey ahead of them. For Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, the big challenge lay ahead of them, and that was the Sioux, who were not far off. Their presence hovered over everything. And we will get to the Corps' first meeting with the Sioux, but next time. However, I do want to finish today's episode with two final things to talk about regarding the expedition. First, I want to jump back in time a few weeks. We talked about the Spanish unhappiness with the Lewis and Clark expedition. Well, the Spanish decided that they were going to stop the Americans. Thus, on August 1st, a force of 52 men, a mix of soldiers, Pueblo Indians, and settlers, set out under the leadership of Pierre Vial, a French frontiersman, to intercept Lewis and Clark the small force would march north and some weeks later come to a Pawnee village where they would find out that the Corps had already been through. The commander, Vial, estimated that the American expedition was a hundred miles ahead of him, and with winter on the horizon, he elected not to pursue. He would march his company back to Santa Fe. The Spanish threat was gone, for now, but they knew the Americans would have to come back down the river, and they planned to be ready. But that is for another episode The final note for today's episode surrounds Sergeant Charles Floyd of the Corps of Discovery, who would become sick in mid August. The sergeant's illness would get progressively worse until he became gravely ill. He was diagnosed with a stomach ailment, but in reality he probably had appendicitis. Ultimately, his appendix ruptured. There was nothing that could have been done for the man. Sergeant Charles Floyd would die on August 20, 1804, at what is now Sioux City, Iowa, the first U.S. soldier to die west of the Mississippi River. His body was carried to a high hill overlooking an unnamed river and buried with full honors. Captain Lewis read the funeral service. Captain Clark wrote this about Floyd, quote, This man at all times gave us proofs of his firmness and determined resolution to do service to his country and honor to himself, end quote. The nearby river was dubbed Floyd's River, and the bluff he was buried on was called Sergeant Floyd's Bluff. Today they are known as the Floyd River and Floyd's Bluff. The sergeant is still buried on the bluff, and there is a 100-foot-tall monument marking his grave. And despite the somber note of Sergeant Floyd's death, you will be amazed to find out that it will be the last death on our journey. Remarkably, Floyd was the only member of the Corps of Discovery to die on this epic crossing. For the time and place and circumstances, it was a remarkable feat. So that is it, the end of Part 2 of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Next time, we will continue up the Missouri River as the Corps pushes into the lands of the powerful Sioux Nation. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution, is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous Reign of Terror, You can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.